A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, it was Halloween night, 1957, in Sun Valley, California. Situated in the San Fernando Valley, the area was named by residents in 1950. Sun Valley was rapidly expanding, and new homes were being built to house the operatives flocking in to work at the brand new steam-powered generating plant. It was a respectable area. Most of the residents were young families, and with a Valley Division police officer living on the street, they had no reason to fear. The neighborhood children had eagerly gone door to door on Community Street, dressed in the costumes their parents had painstakingly crafted or paid for. Dozens of kids knocked on doors or rang doorbells, and some attended parties in the local parks. But as the night drew in, trick-or-treaters made their way home to empty out their bags of candy while their parents tried to convince them not to eat too many before bed. Peter and Betty Fabiano weren't long home from collecting Betty's 15-year-old daughter, Judy, from a Halloween party at a valley playground. They had stopped to pick up some sandwiches before returning to their home at 13236 Community Street, right on the corner of a tree-lined residential road. They had passed out candy to the little witches and ghouls that rapped on their door earlier that night, so they put the candy bowl aside and got ready for bed. Just as Peter got comfortable, the doorbell rang twice in quick succession. He got out of bed, walked to the front door of the one-story ranch-style house, and opened the door with a chuckle. Isn't it a little late for this? He asked jokingly. It was just after 11.30 p.m., and as he looked up to meet the gaze of the late-night caller, he saw a figure wearing a mask. Betty strained to hear the conversation down the hall from their bedroom. She heard someone emphatically reply, no, but she thought the person sounded like a man impersonating a woman. The supposed trick-or-treater had their hand inside a paper bag, which they raised and pointed at Peter. A single gunshot echoed through the house, and by the time Betty got to the front door, her husband was lying on his back with his hands clutched to a wound that was bleeding profusely on his chest. Judy had heard the loud popping sound too, and when she saw her mother cradling her stepfather in the doorway, she was told to run to Bud's house two doors down. Bud Elper was a police officer. 
He was awakened by the frantic banging on his front door and tried to make sense of what the panicked teenager was saying when he opened it. He threw on his dressing gown and ran to the Fabiano's home in his bare feet. Bud called for more officers to be dispatched to the house, and they arrived soon afterwards. Peter was rushed to Sun Valley Receiving Hospital, but there was nothing the doctors could do. The bullet had caused catastrophic blood loss, and he was pronounced dead shortly after he arrived. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 43 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Peter Fabiano was an ex-Marine who had served during World War II. He was born in Lansing, Michigan, and came from a large family with three brothers and two sisters. He moved to Los Angeles and worked as a bartender for a time after the war, and made some extra cash on the side as a bookmaker in 1948, a crime he was convicted of and fined $100 for. Peter met and married Betty, a red-headed divorcee with a son, Richard, and a daughter, Judy. Betty was a beautician who ran a beauty salon in Hollywood. Betty noticed that Peter had a natural talent and eye for hairdressing, and she encouraged him to complete courses with a grant from the GI Bill of Rights. Peter really began to shine while working at the salon. He had even won an award for a style he had made on a client for a competition. The couple bought a second beauty salon in North Hollywood and lived on Community Street with 15-year-old Judy while Betty's 17-year-old son Richard was enlisted in the Navy at a base in San Diego. Richard had been visiting his mother and stepfather in the days leading up to Halloween. He had left the house that afternoon to visit some friends in L.A. before getting the bus back to San Diego. Peter loved Halloween. Betty told detectives that he got a kick out of answering the door to the kids in their costumes and always ensured they had plenty of candy to go around. It seems like an utterly motiveless murder, and detectives admitted they hadn't got one single lead to work with. A team of six detectives were assigned to the case. After scouring through 35-year-old Peter's background, they found nothing to indicate that Peter Fabiano had any enemies. There were no witnesses to the fatal shooting, but a 15-year-old boy who had been chancing some late-night trick-or-treating had seen a dark-colored car leave the neighborhood at high speed. Peter had been shot with a small-caliber weapon, but the investigators found no sign of the gun or the casing from the fatal bullet. The detectives didn't believe it was a robbery gone wrong because there had been no attempts to take anything from the well-furnished property. Peter had seemed jovial when he first answered the door. Detectives turned to Peter's widow, Betty, and asked her if there were any issues in their marriage. She denied that there were. They rarely argued, except about Betty's friend Joan, who Peter didn't like. Joan Rabel was a Lithuanian immigrant who had worked as a cosmetic saleswoman at one of the Fabiano's salons, but Peter was unhappy with the attention Joan gave his wife and how much she seemed to distract her from her work. 
Betty and Peter had argued about the friendship, which was, by some accounts, more than platonic. But Betty wouldn't disown her friend. Instead, she left the home she shared with Peter and moved in with Joan. Peter and Betty were separated from May until July 1957, and when Betty came home, Peter made her promise that she would not see or speak to Joan again. Betty agreed. Betty told investigators about this, and although she didn't think her old friend would go as far as killing her husband, Betty knew Joan harbored feelings for her. Police spoke with 40-year-old divorcee Joan, who was back working as a freelance photographer in Los Angeles. Joan was described as being tall and slim, with brown hair that was streaked with patches of gray. She was not surprised to see them. She told them she had read about the murder in the paper and knew that the police would be speaking with all of Peter's known associates. Joan said the Fabianos were two of her closest friends, but she hadn't seen or spoken to them since July. When asked for her alibi for the night of the murder, Joan told the investigators that she had been at home all night, she didn't own a car, and she certainly did not own a gun. The only solid lead was a dead end, but detectives began canvassing Joan's friends to try and get a sense of the woman who seemed to cause so much trouble for the Fabiano's relationship. They also learned that Joan had prior arrests for theft and violations of the Alcoholic Beverage Control Act. They spoke with Margaret Barrett, who told them that Joan had, in fact, borrowed her green sedan on Halloween night, and she had asked her not to tell anyone about it. Margaret said that Joan told her she didn't want anyone to know. Because of the Halloween murder, I used to work for him. No one liked him. When Joan was questioned about this, she said that it had simply slipped her mind. She claimed that she had only driven around four miles to get some groceries, but Margaret Barrett was an observant person, and she said that the car had been returned with 37 extra miles on the odometer, and a khaki jacket was left inside. The car was taken in to be forensically examined, and lab analysts found traces of soil on the wheels that was distinctly similar to the soil and sand found near the Fabiano home. This was enough for the police to arrest Joan Rabel on suspicion of murder in mid-November. Suspicion of murder was classified as a holding charge in California, meaning it was enough to keep Joan Rabel behind bars while the investigators tried to build a case against her in order for her to be charged with murder. But after a preliminary hearing later that month, Joan was freed on an $8,000 bond. Within a week, the police received a tip from a private investigator who said a woman had come to him and asked him to retrieve a gun from a rental locker at a Los Angeles department store. Investigators retrieved the gun from the locker, which had $3 outstanding on the rental fee, indicating it had first been used over a month earlier. The 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver was found on December 4th. Inquiries at local gun shops revealed that the gun had been sold to a woman named Goldine Pizer in late September. She had bought two bullets and only one was left in the chamber. Ballistic analysts were able to confirm that the fatal shot had been fired from the revolver. And they set out to arrest the 43-year-old widow who went by Goldie. Goldie had ambitions to become a nurse, 
but her squeamish nature meant she was more suited to an administrative role, working as a clerk typist at an L.A. children's hospital. When she was arrested at her home the day after the gun was found, Goldie seemed almost relieved. She was taken to the station and interviewed by Valley Division Police Detective Sergeant Stewart and Keeley. Goldie admitted that she had been the one to pull the trigger and kill Peter Fabiano, but she insisted it had been on the instruction of a woman she was willing to do anything for, Joan Rabel. Goldie and Joan met three or four years earlier when Joan took a photograph of Goldie and her date at a cafe in Los Angeles. Goldie said, We became coffee clutch friends. She knew so much about culture, art, music, all that sort of thing. Then, about a year ago, she began to call me more often. It was around July that she began talking about Fabiano. She said we had to get rid of him. Joan told Goldie that Peter Fabiano was a terrible, evil man who wanted to destroy everyone around him. Joan said that Peter was a cruel boss, a mean stepfather, and an abusive, drug-dealing husband to her friend Betty. She told Goldie that Peter was incessantly bothering her at her house, and she was afraid of him. But there was nothing she could do about it herself because he wouldn't let her anywhere near the salon or Betty. Although the media used ambiguous terms to describe the nature of Goldie and Joan's relationship in 1957, Goldie did admit that she had become strongly attached to Joan, who was well-traveled and confident, everything Goldie wanted to be. Homosexuality was still a criminal offense at the time, so the relationship was labeled as abnormal or weird in the press. Goldie told investigators that, in the months before the murder, Joan constantly spoke about how she needed someone to get rid of Peter Fabiano. Through Joan's description of Peter, Goldie created a mental image of a man who symbolized evil, and she developed a deep hatred of someone she had never met as a result. Goldie was enamored by Joan, promising that she would kill Peter for her. The Daily News quotes Goldie as saying, I had given my word to Joan, and I come from good stock. We Pisers keep our word. So Joan and Goldie began to plan the perfect murder together. She told the detectives, Joan and I discussed killing Fabiano many times. We were undecided whether we should use poison, a knife, or a gun. We decided a gun would be the best weapon. And we decided Halloween would be the best time because we could use a disguise. Throughout three months of planning, Joan brought Goldie to Peter and Betty's salon several times to have her hair done by the man she was tasked with killing. Joan wanted to be sure Goldie would recognize her target when the time came. On September 21st, two months before the murder, Goldie asked a male friend to accompany her to a gun shop in Pasadena. She had never owned a gun before, but told him she wanted one for protection. A widowed, middle-aged woman living alone in Los Angeles seemed more likely to be victimized than a killer, so the store owner recommended a Smith & Wesson revolver. It was small enough for Goldie to carry in her handbag and lightweight enough that the petite woman would be able to control it if she ever needed to use it. Goldie told the salesman that she would be back in a few days. After getting Joan's seal of approval, Joan drove Goldie back to Pasadena and handed her the money to buy the gun and two bullets. Goldie kept the gun in her house until the predetermined night when Joan arrived in the borrowed sedan. 
Joan brought everything else Goldie would need. Blue jeans, khaki jacket, hat, face paint, red gloves, and a domino mask that covered the area around her eyes. They changed into the makeshift costumes and made their way to Community Street at around 9 p.m. Goldie was nervous, but Joan showed no signs of wavering as she fixed her gaze on the bedroom window of the house on the corner. Hours passed before Peter and Betty returned from collecting Judy from the Halloween party, but it didn't take long for the Fabianos to call it a night and head to bed. Once the light went off in the bedroom, Joan told Goldie to go. Goldie hastily tried to touch up the dark face paint covering the lower half of her face, and Joan tenderly adjusted the mask for her. Go do it, Joan said. The gun was concealed inside a paper bag, making Goldie, who was just over five feet tall, look like a trick-or-treater. Her hands were shaking as she walked up to the door and pressed the doorbell. Seconds felt like an eternity, so she rang it again before she heard footsteps approaching the doorway from inside the house. The porch light flicked on, but with her head lowered, she was focused on trying to hold the gun steady inside the bag. Peter Fabiano seemed amused by the slapdash costume the late-night caller was wearing, and laughed as he asked, "'Isn't it a little late for this?' Before Peter could reach for the candy bowl, Goldie replied, "'No.' With her left hand holding her right hand still, she fired a single shot which caused Peter to immediately fall backwards. Peter cried out that he had been shot, and Goldie panicked. She told the detectives, My first impulse is always to help someone, and I started forward, but then I realized I had to get back to the car. I went to the car. Joan thanked me and kissed me. As Peter Fabiano bled out in his wife's arms, Joan sped out of Community Street, and drove straight to Margaret Barrett's home. They left the car on the street, and Joan told Goldie to go right home. Goldie cut up the clothes she had been wearing and burned them before hiding the gun in the storage locker. She felt as though she had given Joan what she wanted, but when Goldie tried to speak with Joan the next day, she was told, We're through. Don't speak to me again. Forget you ever saw me. Goldie was distraught. She felt used and heartbroken, but given the circumstances that she had just committed murder for an illegal love, she felt like she couldn't tell anyone. Goldie and Joan were reunited for the first time since that fateful night in Joan's attorney's office as Goldie repeated her story before Joan's bail was revoked and she was rearrested for first-degree murder. Joan didn't say a word as Goldie wept and told the detectives she had just wanted to make Joan happy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The women were held without bond and booked into the Lincoln Heights jail. Goldie seemed resigned to her fate, but Joan was as expressionless as ever. When word reached Betty Fabiano at one of the salons she had operated with Peter, she was stunned. Speaking with the Valley Times on December 7th, Betty explained that she didn't know Goldie, telling a reporter, We never did meet, but the woman who has confessed my husband's murder once told me on the telephone she was looking forward to meeting me. Betty was asked about her thoughts on the supposed instigator of the murder conspiracy, her one-time intimate friend, Joan Rabel. Betty said, Pete was the only one who had Joan figured out for what she was. We separated because of my friendship with her. Finally, we reconciled when I realized that my husband was right. Joan is cold, cruel, and inhuman, with no heart. Even now, I am sure she had no feeling of regret. She's a real Lucrezia Borgia. At first, I thought no torture would be good enough. Now, so what? Nothing will bring him back no matter what they do to her. Betty was lost without Peter, who was not only her husband, but also her own hairstylist. She didn't feel like she wanted to run the salon without him either, she said. The only reason I wanted a business was because of my husband. I'm no tycoon. The Valley Times interviewed Goldie at the Lincoln Heights jail that same day. She remarked, Joan told me he was an evil man, that he was mean to his wife, and that he'd threatened Joan. I believed Joan. I've always been the kind of person who's faithful to her friends. Joan was my friend. I'd known her for four years. I was so worried about her. She kept telling me about Peter Fabiano, how much he hated her. I couldn't think anymore. She almost had me under a hypnotic spell. I'd never hurt anyone, but I'd do anything for a friend. I wish I'd called the police. So many times I tried to get her to go to the police and tell them about Fabiano. I didn't know what kind of woman she really is. I didn't know how cold she was until today. I never wanted to hurt anyone. I quit my job as a lab technician because I couldn't prick people's fingers. I've always led a quiet, decent life. What will my friends think? I just wanted to help. After a grand jury returned indictments for both Goldie and Joan on murder charges, they were asked how they would plead. Joan entered a not guilty plea, but Goldie pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The prosecutors told the court that Joan had exercised a Svengali-like influence over the timid Goldie Pizer, and that the judge ordered that Goldie undergo psychiatric evaluation. Three psychiatrists examined Goldie between December 1957 and March 1958. Speaking with court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. K. Grosvenor Bailey, Goldie said, I had no motive personally except whatever motive I had to please Joan. I was always easily influenced. I have always been impressionable and always trusting. Goldie said that she didn't have any compulsions throughout her lifetime until she met her co-defendant. She said, The only compulsions I have ever had have been as regards the influence which Joan had on me. I am a very trusting person, and Joan, I think, recognized that, and she was using me for her own purposes as a medium. Dr. Bailey said although Goldie knew what she had done was not right, 
His impression was, quote, The only thought she had was that she had saved her friend, Joan Rabel, from an evil person. I believe that she did not know what she was doing and elected to make the choice in question as similar to the phrase, not that he loved Brutus less, but that he loved Rome more. Goldie described herself as efficient as a loyal Roman in her high school yearbook in 1934. Another psychiatrist, Dr. Robert E. Wires, said that Joan had Goldie do her dirty work so she could stay out of it because Joan wanted Peter Fabiano out of Betty's life. He said Goldie was a passive individual who had become, quote, a hand tool or putty in the hands of Joan Rabel. The psychiatrist labeled Joan's personality as schizoid and said that her influence on the timid Goldie had been the catalyst for the murder of Peter Fabiano. Goldie was declared legally sane at the time of the crime, so her plea of not guilty by reason of insanity would not stand up in court. The district attorney felt that a jury of her peers would be reluctant to condemn the weak-willed Goldie, and they would not convict her orchestrating accomplice Joan if they could not sentence Goldie to death for pulling the trigger. Goldie's statement alone would not be enough to convict Joan of first-degree murder, so they offered both women a plea deal. If they pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, they would avoid the gas chamber, and they would have a chance at freedom. Joan and Goldie agreed, and on March 11, 1958, they withdrew their pleas and entered pleas of guilty to the second-degree murder charges. On April 18th, Superior Court Judge Albert E. Wheatcroft heard from Joan and Goldie's attorneys and the district attorney's office. Goldie's attorneys asked that she be placed in a mental institution as opposed to a prison because they felt that she was too unstable to be incarcerated, but the judge rejected their motion. He recommended that Goldie had psychiatric treatment in prison while serving an indeterminate sentence of five years to life. Joan Rabel received the same sentence. Goldie wept throughout the proceedings while Joan remained expressionless until she was led from the courtroom when a slight smile spread across her thin face. Sentenced to be served at Corona Women's Prison. Goldie and Joan were sent to the Corona Women's Prison to serve their sentences. It's not known how long they spent in prison or what became of them when they were eventually released. Betty Fabiano sold her beauty salon in 1961 and moved away from the home she shared with Peter. She died in August 1999, age 81. Her obituary states that she was the owner and operator of a beauty salon, worked in real estate sales, and taught yoga. At the time of her death, she had two grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. One thing is certain. When Peter Fabiano got out of bed on Halloween 1957 to open the door to a late-night caller, he was jovial and happy because he enjoyed the festivities. Even after handing out candy to so many kids that night, he had left the bowl by the door just in case another child arrived. He never expected to open the door to the ultimate trick, one orchestrated by a woman scorned, 
who had planted a seed of hatred in the mind of another to kill off the man she perceived to be her love rival. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening and please be safe.